Contested is sponsored by Hungry Harvest, offering farm-fresh produce delivered to your door starting at $15. Shop now with code WUNC. Every delivery supports local hunger-solving organizations. Find more at HungryHarvest.net. I'm Dave DeWitt. This is Tested from WUNC, a look at what the day's challenges tell us about where we are, what we believe, and who we want to be in North Carolina and the South. Today, every vote counts. The third wave of the pandemic is here. Across the country, COVID cases are spiking again. North Carolina is seeing one of the worst increases among any of the states, particularly in hospitalizations. You know, all of us are concerned about the trends. You have to really be in denial not to be concerned about where we are. Dr. David Wall is an infectious disease specialist at the UNC School of Medicine. And while we've seen some declines in death, likely due to the shift of a younger population becoming infected with more reopening and more mixing, I think it's still very concerning. Um, So we're still seeing people die, uh, as you know, um, and I see it, you know, every time I'm working in the hospital in the intensive care unit, we see people die. As doctors and frontline hospital workers continue their fight to save lives, a political battle also rages. And maybe it sounds overdramatic, but it sure seems like the future of American democracy is at stake. The key to that future hinges on how much we trust the results of the coming election. Early voting starts this week in North Carolina, and the pandemic has forced many people to rethink how they're casting their ballots. Yeah, for me, voting by mail was kind of a no-brainer. You know, I didn't feel comfortable going in person. I was concerned about my health, concerned about the health of my family and friends that I'm still being around. And I just didn't think that there would be enough precautions set in place to vote in person. So for me, it was a really easy choice to vote by mail. I feel like, you know, I go to the grocery store. I I still go to work, you know, and as long as I'm following, you know, the protocols of wearing the mask and social distancing from people, um, I feel like voting is just as important as doing those everyday life things. In a normal election year, candidates spar over policy, debates are heated but somewhat civil, and there's no question that, no matter the outcome, the losing candidate will accept the results so our country can move forward. But this is not a normal year. Some voters in Georgia reported waiting up to 12 hours to cast a ballot on the first day of early voting in that state. And earlier this week, we learned that the Republican Party of California created fake ballot drop-off machines in a bold and illegal effort to decrease voter participation. That places an even stronger emphasis on how we will count ballots and if it will be fair and accurate. Considering all this, no surprise then that a particular kind of voting is surging nationwide. Absentee voting is huge. My name is Rusty Jacobs, and I cover politics for WUNC. All indications are there are more people requesting the option 
for voting by absentee by mail or by dropping off an absentee ballot uh, at an early voting site or at their county elections board. And that's largely due to fears of voting in person amid the COVID-19 pandemic. But there's also the issue of equipping county boards and polling sites with the equipment needed for those who do want to vote in person. There was a bipartisan bill passed almost unanimously by the North Carolina legislature, and bipartisanship is is kind of a rare thing in that place. Uh, Back in June, this law was passed, and it came up with state funds to match federal funds that are equipping county elections boards with money to buy personal protective equipment, the PPE you hear about, to get more poll workers, to make sure that those who do want to vote in person can do so safely. I'm going to follow up on that a little bit. What To what do you attribute that bipartisan nature? And has that kind of continued as we get closer to Election Day? Let's start with the first part of the question. Uh, <laughs> North Carolina is not new to absentee voting. Uh, absentee, and this is no excuse absentee voting, by the way. You should right. distinguish that from states where you need some kind of excuse, uh, a reason for you to have to vote absentee by mail. Not needed in North Carolina. You just need to be a registered voter. So it wasn't a leap for the Republicans in the legislature to jump on board with a plan that would make the process somewhat easier. The, the biggest, most notable way they made it easier with this law that was passed in June was to reduce the witness requirement. It used to be, and it will be, uh, after this year, this this law only applies to this year only during the COVID-19 pandemic. Instead of two witnesses, one is needed. And that largely recognized people are at home a lot, and it's harder to find the two requisite witnesses. So now only one is needed. But since then, there's been a host of lawsuits filed by voting rights advocacy groups that want to see even fewer obstacles for people to be able to vote absentee by mail. And so one thing they've been looking for is the elimination of any witness requirement. Uh, They've been looking for drop boxes. They want postage paid for returning absentee ballots. And these were steps too far for Republicans. And what you've seen is you've seen a much more partisan reaction to these lawsuits and to the efforts of what is a Democratic-controlled majority elections board appointed by the governor, you've seen them try to work some of these lawsuits out with a comprehensive settlement that would offer none of those major things like not eliminating the witness requirement, but this comprehensive settlement that is now being reviewed by a federal judge would allow people to fix witness deficiencies, that is ballots missing witness information, be able to fix that by affidavit versus submitting an entirely new ballot. But going back to your question, it has created a much more extreme partisan reaction to these issues. And what impact does that have on the ground at these county boards of elections as they wait for this ruling and they've got stacks of absentee ballots ready to be vetted? Just that. They've they've got ballots that they cannot move forward with processing. And we should be clear here, not a huge number. In large part, Tens of thousands of ballots have been returned and processed already, and they are ready to be counted on Election Day. The problem is, is in each county, you've got hundreds or so of ballots that have shown up uh, without witness information. Uh, One example given to me is a scenario where a voter might live with a roommate who was the witness. Let's say they have the same address, but the witness doesn't fill in the the address information, assuming that since it's the same address, it's not needed. So county boards are seeing that, but they cannot cure that process. Uh, So you've got these ballots awaiting a cure by county boards. The courts ultimately will decide whether those ballots missing information need to be spoiled 
rejected and set aside and new ones need to be sent back out to these voters so they can do it right. Or if they can sign a certification, an affidavit, which is punishable by law, if you lie on it, uh, can verify that they are indeed the voter who's registered to vote and that they are allowed to vote. So, Rusty, these deficient ballots, we talk about how important each vote is. Um, but these this number of ballots we're talking about, it's a small number, relatively small number, but but it's pretty important. Certainly to the voters who cast them. And it should be noted that a, a lot of the deficient ballots awaiting a cure, uh, the people who cast them don't really know that there's a problem with the ballots. The counties have held off until a court decision comes. They've held off on notifying the voters and deciding whether these ballots need to be cured by issuing a completely new ballot or just getting an affidavit signed by the voter uh, to cure the problem. The county elections officials are confident there is enough time to cure those ballots. This is kind of nibbling around the edges. It's it's not going to have a big impact on you know getting these ballots cured, whatever mechanism is allowed. I mean, we can get it done. We still have sufficient time before the election. Phil Lehman of Durham, he's the chairman of the Board of Elections in Durham. He's more concerned about the voter confusion in general, with all the headlines and all the news about the legal wrangling, with people not knowing if there's problems with their ballots. He's just worried, again, at chipping away at the confidence people have in the reliability of the voting system. And you got to couple that with the kind of rhetoric you hear from the White House, really baseless claims about widespread fraud in absentee balloting. And so, again, the county officials not concerned so much about getting these ballots cured in time, concern more about the effect on voters' psyches. We just have a lot of work. I also spoke to Corrine Duncan, who is the director of elections in Buncombe County. And so elections officials try to do everything as efficiently as possible. And so when we get uh, ballots in, we turn those around as fast as we can. We're a, a, a service agency, basically, and we want our customers happy. And this is a good thing. This is more voters turning out in all different methods and, and having awareness. People didn't know very much about absentee in North Carolina before this year. Now everyone's aware. So that's very good. So we have rocky waters, but our ship is solid. And again, you know, they've pro- they've received, processed more than 16,000 absentee ballots to this point, by the way, which is three times the n- total number they dealt with in 2016. But she's only dealing with about 300 deficient ballots that need a cure. Nonetheless, she's eager to move on. She said elections officials hate to hold on to anything. And every vote matters here in North Carolina. These elections swing on the smallest number of, of votes you can imagine. Um And within this sort of North Carolina as a swing state, there's also swing counties, about a half dozen or so. Four of those went for Obama in 2012, but swung to Trump in 2016. And one of those is Granville County, just north of the Triangle. You spent a lot of time there. What have you learned about how Granville County might vote this year? That is hard to tell <laughs> that uh, that it is a it is made up of solid blocks of registered Republican, Democrat and unaffiliated voters. But even with those 
partisan divisions or those partisan boundaries, it is very hard to find anybody who is undecided, truly a swing voter. In fact, in my conversations over the course of a few days in the county, I came across one voter uh, who is a registered Democrat. Her name is Walty Blackwell. I found her working, cutting hair at the Major League Barbershop in downtown Creedmoor. And she is struggling to make ends meet. She is taking care of three kids who are doing remote learning at home. And she's got this job. I would like to see um, more affordable health care for um you know, middle-class working people, older people that's worked, um, that may be on a fixed income. And even she said she insisted, when I spoke to her before the first presidential debate, she insisted she was keeping an open mind, she had not made a decision. That being said, she clearly faulted President Trump for divisive rhetoric, uh, for contributing to a hostile atmosphere that raises concerns for her as a mother of three children, including sons, black sons that she's worried about growing up. It's hard trying to break it down to them for them to understand it. And a lot of things going on in the world now, they don't understand. And it's heartbreaking because the way that they were raised, they know that some of the stuff that's going on isn't fair or isn't right. And um, I just want them to grow up in a better world where they don't have to be afraid where they go or how they look to be um, accepted. And she's also clearly seemed to think that Joe Biden might be a better defender of broader access to insurance, uh, might be a better champion for working class people like her. But shortly before the first presidential debate, she had not made a decision. I actually went back to Granville County uh, recently and I met back up with Walty Blackwell. And after that first debate and by by many measures, uh, a terrible debate in terms of civility. She had made her decision, and she is going the direction of her registration, which is Democrat. But again, most people I spoke to had already decided whether they were going to vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris or President Trump and Vice President Mike Pence. And looking ahead to Election Day, one of the interesting things about Election Night, anyway, will be that these ballots we're talking about that have been cast before Election Day itself, they will be counted and we'll see that count on Election Night. That's not the case uh, in a lot of states across the country. So we'll get a pretty good idea Election Night, unless barring any major election problems, we'll have a pretty good sense of, of of the finality of some of these races. But between today and Election Day, What will you be looking for? What will you be reporting on? One thing I'm starting to look at now, and I've already spoken to people like Corrine Duncan, the elections director in Buncombe County, is there's an issue about voter intimidation. Not that it's happening a lot, but it has come up. Some of the rhetoric from the president uh, has uh, suggested or even encouraged supporters of his to go out as, quote unquote, poll observers and watchers, which in itself can be a violation of the law. But there is a heightened concern about efforts to intimidate voters to somehow block access to the polls. There are advocacy groups that are organizing efforts to prevent that from happening, to be there at polling sites, to make sure no groups, no people interfere with people's right to vote. I'm talking to elections officials now. I'll tell you the state elections board has just recently issued a memo and a statement about the laws around what is allowed and what isn't. There's a fine line sometimes between First Amendment rights and doing something that somehow interferes with a person's right to vote, heckling them to the point where they actually turn away and decide not to cast a vote. So again, I'm interested in the issue of voter intimidation and what state and local elections officials are doing to prevent anything like that from occurring on Election Day There will be activities by voting rights advocacy groups, starting with uh, early voting. 
which starts this week, they will be out going to different polling sites, making sure that no groups or individuals get in the way with a person's right to vote. Rusty Jacobs is a political reporter at WUNC. Hang tight. More in a moment. Tested is a production of North Carolina Public Radio WUNC. And this is a good time to say thanks to everyone who supports WUNC. Whether you're an individual donor or a business, we can't say thank you enough for providing us with the resources and opportunity to serve the state of North Carolina with up-to-the-minute news and information. Everyone at WUNC is working around the clock to do just that at this unique and perilous moment in our history. And we couldn't manage without your help. So thanks, and if you are able, please go to WUNC.org if you want to donate for the first time or to maybe increase your support. If you listen to this podcast regularly, well, thank you. But also, you likely know that I have a son who's in his first year in college at Wake Forest. So we as a family have lived through pre-arrival testing and abbreviated drop-off and regular, if not constant, dashboard monitoring. The school, to its credit, does surveillance testing, offers outside dining, and put almost all students in single dorm rooms. I'm not sure how much more they could have done, and so far, so good. As of today... Wake Forest has just 13 confirmed cases in the last 14 days. Other colleges have also fared pretty well so far. Duke, another school with a sizable endowment, a major medical center, and the space to spread out, last week tested more than 15,000 students and staff and had a positivity rate of 0.08%. Compare that to outbreaks at UNC Chapel Hill, High Point University, Campbell University, UNC Wilmington, and most recently, Appalachian State, where cases range from the hundreds to the thousands. By working all together, that I think explains maybe some of the success that we have had. However, we keep on working. We're staying really vigilant and taking it day by day. Laura Andrews is the Associate Dean of Students at Duke University. She attributed Duke's success to something called the C-Team, students, faculty, and staff who volunteer to patrol campus and remind people to adhere to the school's COVID rules. We've gotten a lot of feedback that, you know, the C, the C team, you know, C stands for, for compact or do compact, but it also, it's for community and care and compassion too. And COVID. And COVID. One of those voices you hear is WUNC reporter Liz Schlemmer, and she's been covering COVID on college campuses across the state. She's also reported at North Carolina A&T and other HBCUs and how they have fared during the pandemic. Many of those campuses cite the sense of community and the shared sense of responsibility as reasons for their success. Brenda Caldwell is the student body president at A&T. When it comes to COVID, um, we are wanting to keep each other safe and keep our community safe, um, especially since we know that this disease affects black and brown people more. But no campus is a bubble. And every COVID success story seems to have a but. In Duke's case, for example, the university is doing well with COVID, but it also announced last week that it's laying off 75 people due to the pandemic. Those layoffs mean the elimination of Duke TIP, 
a tuition-based program geared toward high-achieving middle and high school students. And now, with the weather turning colder, college students will be spending more time inside. And we parents will keep watching dashboards and hoping it can all hold together until at least Thanksgiving. That's it for this episode of Tested. I'm Dave DeWitt. This episode was produced by Charlie Shelton Ormond and Rebecca Martinez. Lindsay Foster Thomas is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>